going to be in James chapter 3. And as always, we start with the proverb, the proverb of the day. So just turn to sort of the center of your Bible. After Psalms, we have Proverbs. And we're on Proverbs 10, 6, and 7. I'll go over it a few times. So if you don't have a Bible yet, don't worry. Proverbs 10, verse 6. It says, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Kind of like that. It's neat. Blessings are on the head of the righteous. Well, God favors the righteous, and God is at peace with the righteous. And we talked about that justification, that positive action where God bestows righteousness onto us because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's not because we're great, but because we're covered under Christ's blood, we become the righteous. So his favor is on us. We're at peace with him. Okay, he's at enmity with evil and rebellion. And when we come to the cross, we also have that inner peace. We're able to really develop a peace that surpasses all understanding. Serving God is also a blessing. Last week, we covered faith without works is dead. As believers, filled with the Holy Spirit, we should be doing something to further the kingdom of heaven. That's clear in Scripture. And James make a strong case for that. But we can say that we should serve God because he's God and we're his creation. And that's true. We, we have a subservient role under God. We should be serving him. But there's another aspect to it. God doesn't make us do anything, doesn't make, doesn't make us do anything that's harmful for us. In other words... Uh, serving God is actually good for us. It's good for us emotionally. It's good for us uh, psychologically. It's good for us spiritually. And, and let, me, let, me, let me follow this thought for a minute. Sometimes when we get so focused on ourselves, we become so self-absorbed, and that's a tendency with sinners, that we develop troubles, we develop problems. And oftentimes to serve God and further his kingdom and be others-focused, it, it's better for us. We weren't designed or we, we, we can't live a really good, healthy life by being self-absorbed. So serving God has two aspects. Number one, because we're subservient to him and we should serve him. But number two, because when we're others focused, it's good for us in a lot of ways. The violence of the mouth or the violence covers the mouth of the wicked. We know that there's um, an antithesis here. You see the, the blessed, uh, the righteous, and then the wicked, and it keeps going back and forth. But... Violence covers the mouth of the wicked. The wicked heart sets out to destroy. And the wicked's mouth is the main instrument used to destroy. You ever heard the pen is mightier than the sword? And this is not a coincidence. And every once in a while, it's actually been happening a lot lately. The proverb of the day that we're in parallels or coincides with the New Testament scripture that we're covering. And we're going to see that today. Next verse. The memory of the righteous will be blessed. Well, God and those that follow God have fond memories of the righteous. Starting with Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' great sacrifice coming from his domain in heaven to come to earth and become a man and live among us and die for our sins. So that's a great memory that we have. You also look at the prophets. God told his prophets. He gave them oftentimes difficult tasks to complete, but they still did. And when we read the book of the prophets, we have good memories of them and the apostles, of course, and those who uh, started the early church. But there's also an eternal perspective. The memory of the righteous 
right, will be blessed. There's an eternal perspective. In the end, in the culmination of all human history, looking back, there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying for the former things have passed away. So all of our memories, in a sense, you know, and this is debatable, are going to be something that doesn't cause us pain. So there'll always be the, the memories of the righteous and the good things and, you know, eternally God showing what little seeds did and how people came to faith. And I just think it's going to be a great time in heaven. And the name of the wicked will rot. Well, in our society, sometimes we, society will look at certain figures in a favorable way that aren't favorable. But we know that in the end, justice will be served. Okay, justice will be served. The, the name of the wicked will rot. It will come to nothing. It will produce nothing in eternity. Okay, moving through to James 3. Last Sunday we covered faith without works is dead. James says that three times. It was an eye-opening, sobering picture and scripture, something all believers should read and meditate upon. And today we're going to see faith controls the tongue. Now, this is only applicable to any one of us who have tongues, which probably would be most of us. So this is applicable for pretty much the world's, the earth's population, except for maybe save a few people. Verse 1, James 3. He says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. The word for teachers, plural, in the Greek is didaskaloi. And that word, the edit etymology of that word translates into the English didactic. It's in our vocabulary. Didactic, any position of instruction, and certainly moral instruction. Now, in some translations of the Bible, it says, let not many of us become masters. So this word also carries an influence. The didaskaloi, you, you have some type of influence over somebody else. You hold sway over somebody else. So there's a teaching aspect and there's an influence aspect, and we'll talk about that. In context, this is spiritually instructive teaching. It's quite possible that when James and John and Peter and Paul speak about a particular subject, something was happening in the church at the time or with God's believers that they had to address. So it is quite possible that there were some folks who wanted to elevate themselves and wanted to be teachers and have like a selfish ambition, a drive to be in front of folks. Now, I've noticed that that term Randy Cahill, pastor from Massachusetts, Calvary Chapel pastor, he did a whole sermon on ambition. And there are some with a blind or a selfish ambition just to elevate themselves. And oftentimes something will happen and that'll, that'll, you'll see that it'll ferret itself out. But a stricter judgment. In other words, the teacher is more accountable than the student, especially in a biblical sense. We are judged according to how much light we received. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man or a mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. So James is saying we all stumble, we all sin in many areas, but... If we can master the tongue, in other words, if we can master our words, if we can master what we say, how we say something, it shows maturity. Getting control of the rest of the body is easy, is what they're saying, as long as we can master the tongue. 
The rest of it is a downhill battle once the tongue is mastered. James gives two pictures in the observable world where large objects are controlled by smaller objects, the horse with the bit and the ship with the rudder. In a sense, the tongue controls the rest of the body. Now, physiologically, if you've had any study in the human body, you know that the brain controls the tongue. He's purposely speaking metaphorically here. So this isn't a, a treatise on a, a medical book, okay? There's a, there's, a, there's a metaphor used here on purpose. Matthew 12, 34, even Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what he's saying is whatever comes out of your mouth is a reflection of your true self, right? And if our hearts and our true self doesn't look so good, it may be an indication of needed repentance. I speak figuratively here, but we should all have somewhere in the deep recesses of our mind or our brain a filing cabinet that's kept under heavy guard, armed guards, lock and key. And in that filing cabinet are things that we want to say. Maybe it's gossip, maybe it's abusive speech, maybe it's slander, maybe it's lies. And it should be kept under armed guards. But if we're honest with ourselves, because we're sinners, every once in a while, one of those little things gets past security and the slides out the mouth, <laughs> never to be recaptured again, right? We all have that. You can't get it back. The question is, do we have control over ourselves? Do we have self-control? Because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit versus outbursts of wrath. Just say whatever is on my mind. Or murders. And Jesus said, if you murder someone in your heart, you're, you know, that you're guilty of breaking the law. And these are works of the flesh. Are we walking in the spirit or are we walking in the flesh? And really, this is a picture of many aspects of the fruit of the spirit. Love. And I'll go through them. Love. If we have love, certainly our words will be tempered by love as they're on their way out. Joy, peace, long-suffering, or patience. Sometimes it's hard to have patience with other folks, but we want other folks to have patience with us. Goodness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, trusting God in the situation, and long-suffering, right? I'm sorry, and self-control, which is where I started with that. It's only by the fruit of the Spirit, it's only by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit to help us to dominate and so-called so step on the tongue. You ever hear that expression? I had to step on my tongue. I bit my tongue, right? So these expressions certainly probably come from the Scriptures. Verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. The lesson here is it's amazing how something so small can cause so much damage. We see that a little spark, a little fire can destroy a whole forest, right? What does Smokey the Bear say? Only you can prevent forest fires, right? A little match, a little spark, boom. You, you see some of these California fires, right? And they find that sometimes some dopey people that didn't put out the campfire or some teenagers messing around, and by this little fire, the, there's acres and acres of trees and homes that are burned up. It's pretty bad. A few words from the tongue can also cause untold damage. Let's look at this in different areas. The world's worst di dictators. Because of their tongues, 
They've caused nations to plunge into war. They've caused genocide. They've caused untold sufferings because of their words. I was at a pastor's conference Tuesday, and I was listening to K.P. Yohannan, and he's familiar with uh, some people that have lived through World War II in the German community. And they said, when Hitler spoke, you know, we see him doing the things and, and acting like a crazy man, and, you know, the, the film doesn't do it justice. But those people who were there said he was mesmerizing. He swayed and lulled the whole nation into world war with his words. That's how destructive they were. Darwin's tongue led millions or more into spiritual darkness and confused weak Christians. When I was a kid, you know, I, wasn't, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I thought that God exists and he created us. And then when I started learning about evolution, I was so confused as a child. I couldn't rectify the two, and I didn't know anybody strong enough who could explain it to me. So this, this guy, because of a tragedy that happened in his life, totally turned against God and, and sent millions into the wrong path. And certainly for school children today, remember, the stumbling of a little one, not a good thing. Now let's look at believers. How much damage has been wrought over the years from teaching false doctrine? You'll often, listen, I fear the Lord. I, I don't fear a lot of things in life, but I fear the Lord, and that's good and healthy. When I come up here with the Bible, you know, I'll put my message together, and, and I'll say, well, I don't want to say it like that. I want to say it like this. And you'll often see me up here going, kind of like looking up at the sky, like the right words are going to come into my head if I wait long enough. But it's not because I'm looking for elocution. I'm trying to articulate the point so I don't lead people astray. I also say often, I want to hit this from all angles. Because, God forbid, I leave here and I left somebody with the wrong impression. That would bother me. So I take this stuff seriously. But what about on a personal level? What have our tongues done? They can ruin relationships. They can ruin reputations. And things that sometimes can't be undone. Now, two paths the tongue can take according to what James is saying here. Number one, the tongue is set on fire by hell. Or set on fire, the course is in motion. Evil sets the tongue going. And again, we're going to speak metaphorically here, not physiologically. The tongue controls the body. So this is a negative aspect, a negative path. The body controls the lifestyle. The lifestyle of me controls all those folks around me. Okay? The objective here, a negative uh, aspect, is to destroy, to slash and burn. Or the other path that the tongue can take is, it can be seasoned by the Holy Spirit. It can be seasoned by the fruits of the Spirit in a good way then the tongue controls the body in a good way. The body controls the lifestyle. The lifestyle controls those that surround those in the lifestyle. The objective is to have a positive influence to build up and repair, right? One is to, to destroy and one is to repair. The symbol of fire is used. I know that uh, Jim is a fireman. How many other firemen do we have here? Volunteer firemen? Okay. Firewomen, excuse me, both. Fire people, <laughs> be politically correct. Well, what do you see with a fire? You go to a, and I've seen fires, after it's done, everything's destroyed. It's all charred and useless and, and, and burnt and melted and fires are destructive. Firemen and firewomen see firsthand what a raging fire can do. It's not satisfied unless there's something to burn. Now compare that with the tongue. Some tongues are not satisfied until everything is destroyed. It's like a fire scene afterwards, it's pretty bad. Now let's hit this from another angle, the tongue. Matthew 18, which most Christians can quote. Let's turn to Matthew 18, starting with verse 15. And some of you maybe have heard Matthew 18, but don't really know what it is, so now we're going to 
find out what it is. Matthew 18, verse 15. These are rules for the offended brother. It's a sort of a redress, a grievance, uh, you know, uh, for the offended brother. And it says, verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell 30 other people and don't tell him. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It says, go and tell him or her their fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, if this happens, that is awesome. That's awesome. I've had people come to me, and I've come to other folks, and it's great. We don't have to take any more steps. We work it out. We deal with it. We get it over with. The second step, but if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So you're looking for witnesses in this case. Verse 17, the third step, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. <laughs> Many Christians can quote this, but, you know, over the years, not a lot of Christians employ it. Now, I've heard some excuses. I've heard, well, I'm shy or non-confrontational, but not too shy or non-confrontational to tell 15 other people that weren't related and you just sabotage that person's reputation. There's actually a word for that. It's not shy. It's a psychological term. It's called passive-aggressive. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, and then the other question is, are we, it's an introspection look here with this book, are we the type to get pumped up by one-sided gossip? You hear a tale, you don't know the other side, you're getting riled up, yeah! It sounds like a really, oh, what a, what a story, I can't believe that happened. Now you're actually responding as if it's true, but you didn't get the other side of the story. Proverbs 18.13 says, it is shameful and foolish for a person to hear a matter, make a determination when they haven't heard the other side. Proverbs 18, 17 says that a man's story seems right until his neighbor comes and cross-examines him. So we have that in the courtroom. It came from this. You know, you have the right to be, uh, for somebody not to just spout off in the witness chair, but to have somebody get up after that, after the testimony, and cross-examine that testimony, right? Because there's two sides to every story. And as sinners, I'm a sinner too. We want to paint things always from our perspective. So this is a very important point. It's, it's really foolish to get pumped up by a one-sided story. It makes ourselves look like fools. And also, it's freeing and loving to be honest with people. Here's another, and I, again, I've said it, I like to hit this from all angles. Here's another thing. Let's say you're legitimately wrong, right? You're legitimately wrong. Then if you go to the person, you're, you're on the side of righteousness, and you gain your brother or your sister back, or however it works out, you're vindicated. What if you're in the right, and you go to all these other people, you never go to the person, finally gets back to you that you were spreading all this stuff around, guess who becomes the villain? The person who was probably right in the first place, but the way it was handled was wrong, right? It's freeing and liberating to just be honest enough with someone and tell them their faults between the two of you. Another tip to be used, a few good tips here. When Jesus spoke to the seven churches in Revelation, what did he do? He didn't say, well, I'm Jesus, and you guys stink. You're no good. He said, I know your works. I know your patience. I know your love. But this I have against you. So what he's doing is, I guess you could say he's softening them up, but what he's doing is getting them to pay attention. These are the good things about you. This is the good things about our relationship. But you know what? I got, I got an outstanding issue that I have to discuss with you. Very effective. 
Some folks have used that in the, in the sales world, you know. They pick up things from the Bible, and, and they're good tips. You, you tell the, the honest, truthful things and the good things first, and then you say, well, but this, I, this is a, an outstanding issue that we have to discuss. Because there are some times that sin needs to be confronted and not ignored, and it needs to also be received. Verse 7, James 3, verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of, full of deadly poison. So basically everything on the earth, the animal kingdom, you know, you can teach killer whales to do tricks and dolphins and birds to talk and you can do anything with the, with the observable world. Man is very good at taming the lions and elephants and but we can't tame the tongue. That's still a problem. After thousands of years, men and women haven't figured out how to tame the tongue. James now, James now likens the tongue to a poison. So first it's fire, now it's poison. These, both of these things are destructive. All they can bring is death and destruction. I'm reminded of the Samson study. Uh, a few weeks ago I did Judges 16. Samson, he could tame the whole world around him but he couldn't tame his own lusts. And I suggest, if you haven't heard that on the website, just click onto it, Judges 16, it's an excellent study. Right? Here's a guy who can tame everything in the world, but his own lusts inside of him he couldn't tame. So it's the same thing with man. We can tame all the animals, all the beasts, um, nature in some respects, but we can't tame our own tongues. Now you get the impression that James saw a lot of this in the Christian community. Obviously, who's he writing to? He's writing to believers. I'm not surprised. I actually learned how to gossip in the Christian community. <laughs> it's true. I learned it very well. It, it became an art form after a while. You know, I got saved, I heard the word, and then you start to mingle in the community and you learn what people do. You follow, you're a new believer, and people gossip and you end up gossiping. You know, I mean, it can happen in prayer. Go to, let's pray, go to prayer. Oh, dear Lord, I pray for... Russ, who sits in the front row, by morning he's a heroin addict, and by night he beats his wife. <laughs> you know, I always pick on Russ. Next Sunday he's going to be sitting in the back, I'm sure. I, you're the first person I see. But, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, gee, what did you just do with that prayer? And I, I, you know, people are praying. You open your eyes. Seeing who else is like listening to this? Wouldn't it be easier or more honest to just close your eyes and say, Lord? I pray for a brother you know and I know who's struggling with addictions. That's, that's very simple. I mean, if you don't say the name, are we afraid that God's going to say, you didn't say the name, now I don't know who to, to, to help. <laughs> you know? Come on. Or, <laughs> or always having to know the 411 on somebody and acting real concerned. You know, what, how so-and-so? And you just keep digging until you find out what the problem is in their life. Verse 9, with it, with, it our, with our tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring can yield both salt water and fresh. James is lamenting what comes out of the believers' mouths, because he's speaking to believers. 
The first thing that impresses me is James doesn't say, you guys, you guys, you guys. He says, we. So what do we see here? A humility. James is saying, listen, I actually heard a brother pray once and he said, I'm tired of the gossip at work and I'm tired of it coming from my mouth. Wow. There's an honesty there. James is saying, we. Did James get caught up in gossip? Did he say, you know, Peter and Paul get all the attention and I'm working really hard here in Jerusalem and nobody's looking at me. <laughs> Who do those guys think they are? are? They glory boys or something? I don't know that that happened, but James is saying we. He's, and, and you know what? I see the prophets do the same thing. We, our people, me, my people, we're messed up. Lord, what do we do? There's a humility there because you know what? Every person is a sinner. Nobody gets to the rank of senior pastor and all of a sudden now is on this plateau where nobody else can attain. We're all a work in progress. And also James gives this paradoxical example of things that can't happen in nature. Certain type of tree can't bear two types of fruit. Certain type of spring, it can't have salt water and fresh water. It's one or the other. Uh, so in nature, these things can't happen, but we make it happen. And it could be in the same breath, you know? Oh, Lord, you're so awesome. You're so wonderful, Lord. I really hate that person. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He says blessings and curses come out of the same mouth. Why do we do that? We could be so double-minded, uh, you know? This is Christian hypocrisy. This is what keeps the world not wanting to do, not wanting anything to do with us. There's a term, because the world sees us, you know, we want to marginalize the different ungodly people out there. You know, we're Christians. They're bad. They're going to hell. Huh, Lord, stop those people. A lot of times they don't come to the Lord because they see us eating each other. Literally, we're eating each other's flesh. There's a term that I believe it's the Apostle Paul uses. It's called backbiting. I love to watch the Nature Channel and different documentaries. You know, in Paul, I'm not saying that this is how it came to pass and this is why I use it, but I'm going to say there's really good evidence that that's the case. Where Paul lived in the Mediterranean world, there were at times lions that would roam uh, and they would attack people. But if you ever watch the Nature Channel and you ever see how two lions square off and fight, they square off and they, they try to dominate each other. And the, the lion who eventually maybe through strength or stamina is able to get the other lion uh, to, sub to subdue him. He actually mounts him and his upper spine takes his p powerful teeth and jaws and he sinks it into the part of the, the I guess the cervical uh, spine there of the, of the other lion and digs it in so deep that he kills the lion. It's called backbiting. So Paul or whoever wrote it, I believe it was Paul, I should have done a little bit more homework, um, says backbiting. Christians backbite each other. And this is some example, if this is the example that Paul is using from the, uh, the natural world. We often want to hold unbelievers to the same, to a standard that's so high that we can't even keep in the Christian community, right? We need to show a little bit more unity, a little more loyalty, a little bit more cohesiveness in the body of Christ. There was actually, uh, and during the Civil War, the Europeans, uh, French, English, different countries were interested in kind of coming back to America and saying, you know, we're going to reclaim that land. But the reports came to Europe that the, the battle was so savage, so brutal, you know, brother against brother, the North against the South, that the, the Europeans actually went, we're not, going to, we're not going to go for round two. I think we'll just sit this one out. Because they saw such savagery that they didn't want to go into America again. Said it's not worth the loss of manpower. And say it isn't so in the Christian community little caveat behind this is it's not wrong to tell someone that they hurt you. 
It's not wrong. Well, should I not say anything? No. The fear of not saying anything is what causes gossip. Pray about it, think about it, try to measure your words, and then go to the person. But it needs to be done with prayer, according to the word, and in love. There's also a weird phenomenon of folks that, it's kind of weird. They, they almost like to be lied to. You know, it's like, be nice to my face. I don't care what you say behind my back, but just be nice to me personally. I don't want that. I want people to be honest with me. On the lighter note, Warren Wearsby said this about a friend of his who was a pastor. He says, a pastor friend told me about a member of his church who was a notorious gossip. She would hang on the phone most of the day, sharing tidbits with any and all who would listen. She came to the pastor one day and said, Pastor, the Lord has convicted me of my sin of gossip. My tongue is getting me and others into trouble. My friend knew she was not sincere because she had gone through that routine before. Guardedly, he asked, well, what do you plan to do? I want to put my tongue on the altar, she replied with pious fervor. Calmly, my friend replied, there isn't an altar big enough. <laughs> and he left her to think it over. It's a true story. <laughs> you think I'm crusty. That's pretty heavy. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruits of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So here's a section, seemingly a, a different subject, but I wouldn't say so. James's thoughts all run together. The difference between heavenly spiritual wisdom versus earthly foolishness. It's called heavenly wisdom versus earthly wisdom, but earthly wisdom is really not wisdom at all. So the question is, who is wise in understanding? The answer, basically, someone whose life is an example. There's your first tip there. And this goes with the other things that James says before. Be a doer and not just a hearer of the word. Hear the word and act on it. Don't just be a hearer, be also a doer. He says, faith without works is dead. Actions speak louder than words. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition, both, by the way, are works of the flesh. Number one, don't brag about it. Don't boast about it. And don't lie and say you have wisdom, because you don't. You see, that should be shameful. And unfortunately, in our society, the way things are going, the word shame is becoming, it's fading into, you know, the sunset. Nobody has shame anymore, you know, and, and we should have shame because that leads us to repentance. The second point is if you have these things, it proves that you have no godly wisdom, these works of the flesh. So James proceeds to explain the dichotomy between two types of wisdom. Number one, the first category. It is earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. They go together. Earthly wisdom, again, is really no wisdom at all. Envy, self-seeking, confusion, and every evil thing come as a result. They come as a package deal. You ever see that show? Okay, raise your hand. Who remembers Get Smart? Maxwell Smart? Oh, wow, a lot of you. That was like a, a closet cult uh, thing or something, but it just was funny. Who did the government agent Maxwell Smart work for? Who was the name of the company he worked for? Control, right? Who was he always against? 
chaos, controlling chaos, very good. So the earthly, the satanic, and it was kind of neat, is always increasingly moving towards its natural tendency, chaos, disorder, confusion, spiritual confusion. And I've said this, and you know, I don't know if I'm right or not, but I would surmise that it was only till after the fall that the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, where everything goes from a state of order to disorder, was employed by God. It seems, it seems so, doesn't it? And that's what evil does. It's always going towards breaking down, tearing down, disorder, confusion, chaos. The second category is godly wisdom. will be ca- categorized by the following characteristics. Number one, it's pure. It's pure. It's truthful. It's, it's unadulterated. It's unstained. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. Any relationship is going to be a give and take. If you're in a marriage and you're not willing to yield, forget about it. You have to be willing to yield. It's a back and forth, right? It's a give and take. Uh, Full of mercy and good fruits, without bias and hypocrisy. It's fair with pure motives. And really, if you look at any situation in your life, you could say, is this earthly, demonic, sensual, or is this godly wisdom? Any situation. If it's a, a... gossipy, secretive, uh, you know, getting a bunch of people involved, uh, character assassination, you see that there's confusion, you see that there could be envy, there could be self-seeking. So this is not godly wisdom. If you see a situation where somebody will uh, maybe be hurt and pray about it and and measure their words and go to that person first between the two of them and solve the problem and build a greater friendship from it, then you know that that's godly. There's godly wisdom employed there. Verse 18. It says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peacemakers will sow seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness or goodness. I guess this is the positive biblical model of what goes around comes around. You put, you know, you sow good seeds of peace, you'll reap righteousness, goodness, right? The fruits of that peace. And certainly godly wisdom is such that it knows how to control the tongue and make peace instead. During World War II, there were posters that said, loose lips sink ships. (laughs) And it was true. Loose lips from the Americans, uh, and and either side, will sink American ships. You start babbling about what's going on, the enemy finds out they're going to sink your ships. So that's where that comes from. And it was to be taken literally. But destructive speech can come in many forms. Proverbs 10.19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Let's look at this from many different angles. Gossip comes to mind. It's always going to be the number one when we cover this type of scripture. What about lies? Lies are shameful. You know, the devil is the father of lies. What about abusive language, especially to our kids? You realize that children from birth, you know, to a point where they can understand the concept of God, you represent God to them. Okay? It's not theologically sound, but it's just a fact. As they develop, they see you. You're the provider. You're the protector. When you abuse your children and you say you'll never amount to anything, you know, you're a loser, uh, it's, you know, you, you'll never get a job, well, guess what? You may find out when they grow up, they never amount to anything. Why? Because you told them that so much that they believed it. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So when we look at controlling the tongue, you're like, well, where did that come from? Controlling the tongue, I mean, there's there's a list so long that I couldn't even cover it all today. Boasting, bragging, uh, maybe bragging about your past life and what you used to do and how you used to sin. That's not edifying. What about manipulation? 
There are those that are kind of born manipulators. You know, it's what they do. They just cannot constantly manipulate to get what they want. There's a lot of areas. And you've you got to look at this too. Busybodies. Somebody who's always got to know the 411. Always got to be in somebody else's business. Always got to go around and find out how, what happened here, what happened there. It's a busybody. And you know what? That's why these reality shows are so big. Right? Americans are addicted to reality shows. Why? Because we want to be in everybody's business. And you could say, well, it's not a sin. I'm watching a reality show. I'm not saying it's a sin, but you could see the heart of Americans, especially American Christians. We lead boring lives. Right? That's why we've got to be in everybody else's business, because our lives are too boring. But you take a, a Christian from you know, Sudan, or you take a Christian from Malaysia, and man, they're, they're on the run for their lives. <laughs> they're trying to share the gospel and teach. They don't have time for this, because they, they don't lead a boring life. It's under persecution. What happens when the hurts come from uncontrolled tongues? What happens? What do we do? Well, maybe you don't gossip. Maybe you don't go to person. Maybe you run away. Here's another phenomenon. Christians, they just run away. They run away from all their problems. Flee, run away, you know? It's this, I, I don't get that either. That's not biblical. Not taking the time to repair the relationships. Some people are on their fourth and fifth and sixth church. Now, if you've come and you've changed churches because uh, there's false doctrine, you should leave that church. I would agree with you. But if you're on your fourth, you know, the first church, you know, somebody from the worship team hurt my feelings. It's the second church, well, it was the pastor. On the third church, it was somebody that was friends with me in the church, and they hurt my, oh my goodness, please. Are we that sensitive as believers that we're just always running away? It's like a board game. You're all over the map. Grow where you're planted. Pray about where you're supposed to be and grow where you're, make it work. The best relationships come through adversity, right? There's fruit from that. And that's why you see, listen, I'm not, I'm not slamming anybody, but that's why you see Christian divorce is as high, if not higher, than secular divorce. What do we show in the world? We run away from our problems. If, if it gets too hot, run away. Divorce them. And then make up some excuse and then get back to the church and forget about it. You know, what are we, are we that weak as Americans? Maybe what we need is a good dose of persecution. Maybe that'll fix us. Maybe that'll cause us to come together. Maybe that'll cause us to work harder. Maybe that'll cause us to have to work with a fellow believer that maybe we don't like because it's for our survival. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 through 22. I just want to end on this note. This is great. I put in my Bible, I wrote wow next to it. <laughs> it says, also, do not take to heart everything people say. Lest, your heart, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. <laughs> you know, if you, if, listen, I've been on both sides of the fence. I've said things I shouldn't have said, and I've been the victim of it. And of course, when I'm the victim of it, it's, it's worse. But people are going to talk about you. I mean, I've been a cop for 18 years. I've been a pastor for three and a half. If my ears rang every time somebody spoke about me, I'd be deaf right now. You know what I'm saying? It's just the way it is. But in the end, we're looking for repentance. Jesus says, if your brother repents, if he offends you and repents, forgive him seven times 70. And we've talked about this. If they continue in destructive behavior, maybe it's good to let the feelings go, but maybe it's good to just kind of wait a while before you restore that relationship. Because repentance means that there's actions associated with it. I'll give you an example. If you didn't get the Judges 10 study, get it. 
because this is where you would see this, the children of Israel, oh Lord, we're being oppressed. Okay, let me help you. Okay, then they sin again. Oh Lord, we're oppressed. And it's just like this drama cycle that goes on and on. In Judges chapter 10, what happens is the children of Israel cry out to the Lord, oh Lord, we're being oppressed. And he waits. That was the first step of repentance, acknowledging the situation. And then they would acknowledge their sin. And then there were fruits of repentance. It actually took the children of Israel three steps in repentance before the Lord said, okay, now I'm going to get you out of your, your jam. So there is, there's repentance. John the Baptist said, bear fruits of repentance. Repentance is also lost in the American church. We run away, we let time pass, and then we expect everybody to be nice to us again. It doesn't work like that. There's got to be repentance. There's got to be a heartfelt realizing you did something wrong and make it right. Yeah, that, that is humiliating. Yes, that is a blow to our ego, but it's what the Bible says that we need to do. And I would say this, this scripture applies to anyone with a tongue and understand that relationships will often become more fruitful after biblical uh, prescription is followed. Let's pray.